When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Film Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joseph McBride about his new book, The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. Joseph McBride is an internationally renowned film historian, biographer and critic who has written 22 other books, including claimed biographies of Frank Capra, John Ford and Steven Spielberg. Joseph, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be with you, Nathan. Thanks yeah. Oh, you're welcome. It's great, great to uh, great to be chatting with you. Um, so, Joseph, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I've been uh, writing about film since the late '60s, and uh, I began uh, studying Orson Welles in 1966 uh, in college. I got I saw Citizen Kane uh, when I was 19, and that set me on my course of wanting to be a film historian, film scholar, and screenwriter, etc. And I'd, I've done all three. And uh, I've written three books on Wells. And the first book uh, took four years to write. and was published by the British Film Institute in the Cinema One series. And through that, I got to meet Wells. Uh, he, he was reading the uh, chapters I was publishing in film magazines, and he liked them. And I, I went to Hollywood in 1970, to, and I met John Ford, because I, I, I was doing a book on Ford with Mike Wilmington for Cinema Two series. And as as everybody knows, film knows, Ford was a notoriously tough interviewer, interviewee, and I had this very bizarre interview with him. He was uh, really un, uncooperative, but you know, fascinating uh, to study him for a future biographer. I, I, I wrote a biography of him in two thousand one. It came out in two thousand one, but it took about thirty years of research off and on. Uh, he was such a difficult man to figure out. It really was helpful to spend an hour with him just studying his body language and, and all the behavior. And uh, He retired in the course of the interview. He suddenly announced his retirement. And during the uh, interview, he kept calling to his secretary and saying, has the Italian gentleman called, a gentleman from Italy? As he called, he was very anxious about this. And I didn't know what the heck was going on. And then he retired. He announced his retirement. He said, I'm a hard work, hard-nosed, hardworking ex-director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. It was very moving. And I found out many years later in Ford's papers that he was waiting for a call from Italy to do an Italian Western that Woody Strode, his good friend and star, had um, tried to set up for him in Italy, and it wasn't happening. And Ford at that point realized that he was not going to make another film. And it came to a head that day. And uh, <clears throat> um, three days later, I was acting in Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, which is about an old director, partly modeled on John Ford and partly modeled on Ernest Hemingway. And uh, I play a young critic historian who's following this old guy around, peppering him with uh, kind of absurd film buff questions. And, and <clears throat> it's the last day of his life. Uh, people by now have seen The Other Side of the Wind, which took 48 years to come out. I spent five years acting in that film. That was my film school. And I, I didn't have a formal film school education. We only had three film courses, and I taught myself how to write screenplays and write books. And um, But I was with Wells for five years. Uh, he's such a great director of actors, and, and it was uh, fascinating. So I've done two other books on him, and then I went to Hollywood and wrote screenplays for uh, 18 years and uh, decided to in 1984, go full-time writing books, which I enjoy more. And I spent seven and a half years doing a biography of Frank Capra, which was uh, very difficult but very satisfying. I, uh, four years of that were spent on a legal battle 
trying to get the film published and book published. And um, I recently published a book about that legal battle called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra, which is kind of a Kafkaesque saga of uh, uh, nightmarish experience in the publishing industry. Uh, Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger, and my editor at Knopf, Robert Gottlieb, the famous editor, were conniving against me trying to uh, either stop the book or neuter the book because it, it, it upends the Capra legend. And, and Capra's autobiography was almost completely false. And so I corrected all the myths and I revealed that Capra was an informer during the blacklist period, for example, and they were trying to stop all that from coming out. So anyway, then I did a, I did a biography of Steven Spielberg and I got my Ford book published, my Ford biography, and I, I keep writing film books, and I've written two books on the Kennedy assassination, one of which came out last uh, December called Political Truth, the, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, which I'm very proud of. Uh, and I did a book on Billy Wilder. It came out around the same time, Billy Wilder, uh, Dancing on the Edge, a big critical study from Columbia University Press. So I've been very busy, and I teach full-time at San Francisco State University as well. Wow, that's quite a varied career. Um, in comparison to my rather staid academic one that involves, I did appear in an episode of The Watchmen, uh, but that's it, as an extra. Um, the new one. Uh, teaching for 20 years now, full-time, uh, and I didn't do that much. I mean, I taught a few courses in Los Angeles before I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, but I got a job teaching at San Francisco State. And I enjoy that a lot. It's it's great to have contact with young people on your toes. And uh, I teach film history and uh, screenwriting. I've been doing that uh, full time, and I write books on the side. It's really a nice life, actually. And I, I know you do the same. Um, yeah, not not as many uh, <laughs> books as you've done. Um, now I understand if uh, there's a, there's a Stanley Kubrick uh, story in there. Um, yeah. Would you well, like to tell I, us about I, that? I admire you for doing Kubrick. He's, he's always been one of my uh, very favorite directors. And, and uh, I used to think it'd be fun to write a biography of Kubrick, but I live in California and you live in uh, well, you live in Wales, don't you? Uh, yeah, um, I understand that there's a Stanley Kubrick story in, in, in there. Well, I wrote a biography of Spielberg, and uh, of course he did AI, uh, kind of completing the vision of Kubrick. And uh, I have a different view of Kubrick and Spielberg from the conventional view, and I, I'm curious what you think. Uh, the conventional view is that Kubrick is, is a very cold uh, uh, misanthrope, and Spielberg is a very sentimental guy. And I actually think they're closer uh, together than people realize, and uh, I think I see Kubrick as a disappointed romantic, which is what I.L. Diamond called Billy Wilder, and he, he said he, he, Wilder worked in the tradition of Arthur Schnitzler, which uh, Kubrick did too with uh, Eyes Wide Shut. And Disappointed Romantic uh, is, is a good description of Kubrick. I think he was disappointed in humanity and he makes films uh, showing people as uh, very flawed as we are. And uh, Spielberg is a more optimistic director, no doubt, but um, he's, he's uh, has a lot of dark themes in his films, a lot of obsessive themes, nightmarish themes, neurotic themes. That, and uh, I think AI is a really good collaboration between them, a good marriage of the two. I went to Kubrick's memorial service at the Directors Guild, and Spielberg spoke. And uh, that's when people didn't people didn't know until then that he was uh, had this uh, telephone friendship with Kubrick, and they were on the phone a lot and faxing each other. And he, he said that Kate Capshaw, uh, Kubrick insisted on ins Stephen installing a uh, fax machine in his bedroom so that he could send him faxes at any time of the day. And Kate Capshaw finally said, move that fax machine out of the bedroom. I can't stand it. Uh, anyway, but he talked about that a lot, and people were really uh, surprised. They didn't know how close Spielberg was to Kubrick. And then AI came after that, of course, and uh, it was a fascinating time. I, I actually, um, when people were standing in the lobby talking to Spielberg, I saw... Um, Louis Blau and um, James Harris standing talking to each other. And I thought, well, these are the two most important guys at this event, and nobody knows who they are, and they're standing by themselves. I'll go over and talk to them. So I had a wonderful talk with those two guys. As you know, they were absolutely crucial to Kubrick's career. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to look for the 
people like that who are really the key people that people may not know about. Yeah, no, I'm 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 not in disagreement about. I think I think um, um, Kubrick is incorrectly um, described as a cold and, and misanthropic director, and I actually think his films are far more hopeful. And that the if you look at the final sequences in many films, um, they provide images of hope, paths of glory, Spartacus, um, uh, uh, even Doctor Strange, Love, two thousand and one, um, and then his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, ends with the word, you know with the f word as if to say go forth and multiply um so i think there's 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 much more um a hopeful outlook look to kubrick um than, than i think people buy into his uh, reputation too uncritically yeah the whole thing about him being a recluse feeds into that but i mean he was he had the kind of ideal life he is his house was kind of like his film studio and he, he worked out of his house just like most people are doing now during the pandemic and he was ahead of his I had a great experience with uh, a Kubrick film, I should mention. One of the formative experiences in my life, uh, along with Citizen Kane and a couple of other things. But in 1964, I went to see Dr. Strangelove at our neighborhood theater in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. It's now called the Rosebud Theater. I went with my best friend, who was a brilliant guy. Uh, He wound up being number one in his class at Harvard Law School, and he's a a great lawyer, a brilliant fellow. And uh, anyway, during the film, I, I thought it was a scary thriller. Uh, you know, it's, I didn't get the humor, but my friend kept chuckling all the way through. And then he said, as we could say in those days, he said, let's sit through it again. You know, back in the day, you could sit through a film a second time. And the second time I saw it, I got the humor. It took me a while because it was a paradigm shift for, for a lot of us. Uh, you know, black comedy was not something we were used to in those days. And... Uh, I, I love that film. Like I got it, and I came out of the theater, and I really feel I was a different human being when I came out of the theater. It had such a profound effect on me, and it, it was a key step in um, my uh, uh, rebellion against authority figures. I was a Catholic kid, and I, I, I wrote a memoir about my uh, Catholic upbringing, and I had a nervous breakdown when I was in high school, and I was in a mental hospital. It was very traumatic, but it was really the best thing that ever happened to me. But, I had to rebel against the church and my upbringing, and, and Kubrick played a role in that by teaching me to not believe in the politics. Well, this is fascinating. Uh, rather than ask you more questions about that, what I'm going to do is use Kubrick as the segue, um, and a rather nice segue between, um, uh, well, our conversation now and um, the book that um, um, we want, want to talk about today, which is um, The Whole Dern Human Comedy, because, of course, um, Cohen's uh, quite influenced by Kubrick, right? Yeah, they're very similar in many ways, and they have similar detractors who think they're misanthropes and they're chuckling over, you know, hatred of humanity or you know, superior attitude toward mankind, etc. And uh, the way I structure my book, um, I, I decided to take the principal objections to the Cohen brothers and answer each one, which is something I learned from the Jesuits, actually. I went to a Jesuit high school, and they teach teach you to defend your faith by uh, what you do is you ask the other side, okay, tell me what you think, and then you tear it apart. And they're very good at dialectics and and, uh, debate, and I learned that technique. And uh, so what you got to do is get the other side to uh, say why they uh, hate the Coen brothers. And Jay Hoberman proved to be a very useful foil for me because he's a critic who's a smart fellow and he writes interesting books about films in different decades of American history and how they reflect history, etc. But he's got a tremendous hatred for Spielberg and a tremendous hatred for the Coen brothers. And uh, he's very wrong-headed, I think. And so I used him as a foil, uh, but uh, other people too, you know, people claim they were anti-Semitic and a serious man. And I think, uh, you know, I go into that in, in detail. And um, so a lot of people don't like them blending violence with comedy, which I think is one of their great strengths and one of the reasons they're so popular, because uh, comedy and violence are very uh, intertwined. I mean, Arthur Penn and uh, Bonnie and Clyde showed that, that humor and violence are close together. I mean, people kind of react sometimes when some... The first thing I... I when, when I heard Kennedy was shot, I heard that from a kid in our cafeteria line, and I laughed because it just 
struck me as absurd, you know, but uh, I realized that he wasn't kidding. So I, I spun around and ran out to a radio and listened to it. But in the, the left-handed gun, there's a famous scene where a guy gets shot out of his boots <clears throat> and there's a shot of a cowboy boot sort of wobbling in the street and a little kid laughs and his mother slaps him in the face. That's a great scene. And um, so that kind of shows you people, you know, Jean Renoir said, for example, he, when he rehearsed actors, he used to what he called the Italian method, which is not, not to let them act, just have them read the script for a while. And he said the first reaction actors give is a cliche. It's always some obvious cliche, like a mother, child dies, she would cry. But he said, I've been to many funerals where people are laughing, for example, and you know, to get the unexpected reaction. And that's partly what Kubrick and the Coen brothers do. They get very human contradictory, conflicting impulses in people, and they bring it out onto the screen. And it gives a real sense of um, life and its complexity, which a lot of filmmakers don't even approach, I think. Yeah, there's, there's one thing that, that, that you said there that I really, I really wanted to um, pick up on. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you attribute it to the Jesuits, but it also sounds, in a way, um, when you said dialectical or, or Socratic, um, um, it sounds Talmudic. Um, one could describe both um, the Kubrick and the Coens as, as Talmudic filmmakers. How would you react to that? Yeah, yeah, there's there's a, an interesting book, uh, Stanley Kubrick is Jewish Intellectual, I think it's the title, a good book. And, uh, <clears throat> well, A Serious Man is, is the kind of, classic text in that regard because it's it's about their upbringing uh, or it's reflective of their upbringing in Minneapolis as Jewish kids in the 50s and I you know I'm from the same period as the Coens I'm a little older but um, they felt very odd being Jewish there is a Jewish community in Minneapolis but it's mostly you know Scandinavian people etc and they called themselves Jews on the plains and that's kind of what uh, Buster Scruggs is about to some extent but um, they were outsiders, and I, I've always gravitated to writing about directors who see themselves as outsiders, like Frank Capra was an outsider as an immigrant to America, and Ford was a proudly Irish guy growing up at a time when uh, people were supposed to be ashamed of their ethnic roots, and he was very proud of his. And Orson Welles is an outsider because he's a genius and an aristocrat in a popular medium, as John Renoir calls it. But the Coen brothers were... Um, <clears throat> feeling a bit alien in that environment. And uh, uh, Ethan wrote a good short story in his collection about a kid who was going through Hebrew school and feeling very alienated. And it's very funny and very sad and very dark and all that, which A Serious Man is. A Serious Man is really basically the version of the Book of Job, I think. I'm not the first person who said that. But um, people attack the film as being vicious toward humanity because at the end of the film, you know, God sends a, a tornado <clears throat> to, to attack a school and kill kids. And the tornado is coming toward the son of the protagonist at the end of the film, and that's the end of the film. But um, nobody attacks the book of Job for being too negative. <laughs> they apply different standards to literature and to uh, films. I think it, because Truffaut once told me I knew him well in Hollywood, he said... Um, Serious filmmakers have a dilemma because he said life leads toward dissolution and ultimately death. And if you're trying to tell the truth, that's the truth. And yet what the public wants is something optimistic. They want a happy ending. And somehow you have to navigate between those two poles. And Orson Welles said a happy ending depends on where you stop your story, you know. <laughs> And so the Coen brothers do not provide easy consolatory stories, but they're, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Serious Man is a very bleak ending, but there's something kind of funny in a very dark way about that film. And also in um, the book of Job, uh, which I reread, um, he goes to friends for advice and they can't really give him good advice why God would inflict such punishments on a, on a good man, you know. That's the, one of the classic dilemmas of humankind. And, so in the Coen Brothers film, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the fellow goes to see three rabbis who he hopes to get answers from, and, and none of them can give him a good answer. And one guy is kind of sarcastic. He's kind of a wiseacre. He's a funny guy. And <clears throat> another one is a really ancient rabbi who's listening to rock music. And, uh, you know, uh, the guy can't get a, an answer 
and his colleagues are all hostile to him and uh, terrible things are happening to him. As an academic, I really identify with the scene where uh, there's, there's a Korean student who's trying to pressure him into giving him a better grade, trying to bribe him. I think he gives him $1,000 or something. And he, he turns it back, you know, in outrage. And the kid's father shows up and kind of threatens him. And, and the father says, culture clash, culture clash, you know. And, uh, one of the sad things in the film is that he finally agrees to change the kid's grade. There's a close-up where he's taking his pen and, and marking the, you know, whatever it is to a better grade. Uh, he's giving, he's compromising. But then he has this really black comedy thing where his wife is cheating on him with this very uh, smarmy guy, and he gets the, the man gets killed in a car accident. And uh, our hero has to uh, pay for his funeral. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous, all the things that are heaped on this poor man. And, uh, it, it, but I, I find it a very compassionate film. It's, uh, we, we love the central character. I think, see, the Coens love their characters. They've said that. They, they, they call them a confederacy of idiots. And it's kind of like John Kennedy Tool, a confederacy of dunces, you know. They see mankind as a bunch of, Buffoons to some extent, and we all are. Uh, but there, there's a very serious uh, tone to a lot of the films, and, and you look at the darker films, that, you know, like No Country for Old Men, and and Fargo is a very dark film. Uh, you know, it starts out as kind of a fun, uh, funny film, and, and that's the one that is the most beloved, I think, by the public because Marge Gunderson is such a beloved character, and she's she's a real positive figure of humanity. Uh, female police chief who's pregnant and waddling through the snow and having morning sickness, but she's very sharp, solving crimes and, and a great character. And the public just loved that character. And, but the film is, is really horrifying in a lot of ways, you know, pushing a guy into a, a wood chipping machine and things like that. And uh, this, this fool who um, thinks he can pull off this scam and get away with it, it just leads him into uh, what's the line that John Goodman uses in Big Lebowski, a world of pain. He's talking about, uh, we're going to be in a world of pain. And that's kind of what happens in a lot of the Coen Brothers films. You know, like uh, Josh Brolin stumbles upon a drug deal gone bad and he makes a big mistake. He picks up the suitcase full of money. Number one rule, if you stumble upon a drug deal gone bad, turn around, get the hell out of there and don't pick up the suitcase. Look what happens, you know. Um, and and I, I see them as the heirs to Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder is one of my favorite directors, and I wrote a book on him recently, the Billy Wilder Dancing on the Edge. And I've been studying him for more than 50 years. But the Coens, to me, are the contemporary equivalents of Billy Wilder in many ways. And a lot of Wilder films are about scams or uh, masquerades and people trying to pull off a caper of some kind or some kind of... Uh, they think they're very clever and they're really not and blows up in their faces. And that's, that's kind of the plot of a lot of Coen Brothers films. I'm glad that you mentioned the wood chipper because when you talked about comedy, um, my brother and I just, um, make of this what you will send each other pictures of wood chippers (laughs) (laughs) because of that film. And, um, um, the picture in your book I, I took a picture of and straight away sent it to him. I didn't, no caption needed. Um, that's because we used to live together. Well, I had, did have one in my backyard. So of course I did take a picture of it. Um, um, but uh, you know, I suppose this is another podcast. You can psychoanalyze my brother's relationship with my brother as, as represented by the wood chipper. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. I mean, you talked about uh, how um, you, you took that Jes- Jesuit approach to sort of re- rejecting the criticisms. What motivated you to write the book? What, how, did, what, how did you come to write it? Well, I was thinking about them for a long time because they are my favorite contemporary filmmakers along with Spielberg. I love Spielberg. And, and I, I, you know, I'm, Nigel Morris, a British scholar, called me the godfather of Spielberg studies. And I, I daringly wrote a positive biography of him back in the 90s when everybody else was attacking him. Although actually it coincided with Schindler's List coming out and we got a lot of uh, praise from people who previously dumped on him. But um, uh, I've always loved the Coen brothers and 
I actually, you know, I, I mean, the first time I saw this was Fargo, and I had a kind of mixed view because I'm from Wisconsin, which is adjacent to Minnesota, and people in Wisconsin, people call that flyover country in, in America. In other words, uh, the middle of part of America is considered culturally not respectable compared to the coasts, California and New York are the intellectual or creative havens. And they see people in middle America as a bunch of adults, you know, and they make fun of our accents and everything. And in Fargo, I was kind of offended the first time I saw it because uh, the Cone brothers are, are kind of making fun of the, the, the broad accents of the people. Oh, yeah, you know, groceries and oh, yeah, oh, good to see you, you know. And I thought, geez, you know, I mean, I had a lot of that kind of stuff heaped on me over the years. And But then I went home uh, a few months later and back to Wisconsin and all my relatives were raving about Fargo and they all talk like that. They have that kind of accent. It's a Midwestern accent of some kind of, I don't know where it comes from, Scandinavian or German or something. But, um, and I said, well, didn't you feel that, that he was, they were making fun of you? And they said, oh, no, no, we just felt great that people like us are on the screen, you know? And, I mean, Marge is an adorable character. Everybody loves her. It's hard not to like her, but Jerry Lundergaard, the, Lee guy is a real fool and he has that kind of accent, but they just thought, you know, all this stuff is really funny and cute. And, and so I kind of thought, well, hey, you know, just telling the truth about the way people are and uh, kind of relaxed on that front. So that was my first kind of mixed uh, take. I think maybe the Coen brothers took a bit of getting used to uh, because they, they make films that are, uh, they mix genres. <clears throat> and uh, Truffaut mentioned that in the Hitchcock interview book, he said Americans are uncomfortable with the mixture of genres. And I looked up the review in uh, the New York Times of Shoot the Piano Player, and Bosley Crowther, who was infamous as being like the stupidest film critic of all time, or not quite, but I mean, he was right up there. He, he said this film is, is ridiculous because it's, it's a comedy, and then somebody gets shot, and somebody gets killed, and then Truffaut wants us to laugh, and then he has people singing songs, and you know, what is he doing here, you know? And uh, <clears throat> I think that's what um, uh, Truffaut was reacting against, uh, you know, that people in America just didn't get shoot the piano player. And that's very much like a Coen Brothers film, you know, like you have funny stuff going on. Burn After Reading is an underrated film. I think that's a good satire of politics. It's about the CIA and a bunch of idiots, lovable idiots, the uh, Coen Brothers characters, Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt and... Uh, they're, they're, they find the, the confessions of a CIA guy who was expelled for drunkenness, John Malkovich, and they try to sell it to the Russians. And the Russians kind of wonder, why are these idiots trying to sell us uh, CIA secrets? You know, what's going on? They just want some money so that Francis can get a plastic surgery operation. You know, and the Russians think these people are, are morons, which they are. But the Coen brothers love those kind of characters because it's kind of, humanity in the raw and but the mixture of comedy and violence uh, uh disconcerts people and uh but the big lebowski is a film everybody loves of course and especially young people uh, it became a real cult film with young people uh, some of the cone brothers films didn't do terribly well commercially when they first came out they got picked up you know home video people started watching them and um Big Lebowski is terrific. But again, there's a mixture of violence and comedy. And, and, and the mixture of tone is something Billy Wilder does. And it's one reason I like him a lot. Like in the apartment, there's some really um, cruel behavior, terrible, crass, corrupt behavior, and, and some very tender romanticism and some very sweet comedy in that film. And it's all mixed up like in real life. You know? So they're the heirs of Billy Wilder. They're the sons of Billy Wilder is the way I like to put it. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Big Lebowski. I don't know if I count as a young person, but that's probably my favourite. And I'm, I'm, I don't know. You, my cushions have fallen down, but I have Big Le Lebowski cushions behind me of each of the main characters. Um, yeah, I see John Goodman over there. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to prop them up so you, <laughs> so you can see. Useless on a podcast. And you know, one thing I found they don't they don't like to give interviews very much because. Um, you know, one reason, there are a couple of reasons people, one reason I write books about filmmakers is that they're misunderstood or uh, some injustice is being done to them. Um, 
you know, like when I wrote two books on John Ford, both times he was critically disregarded, disregarded, and I wanted to help bring him back to his deserved stature. And the Coens often got kind of stupid reviews. I felt people insulting them and everything. And I think people didn't understand them. And um, uh, so that's why I, you know, uh, dig into these uh, filmmakers. And Spielberg is another example of somebody who was being trashed all the time by people. And uh, uh, I, 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 Capra, on the other hand, was um, it deceived his public and, and uh, informed on uh, his colleagues and things. So he, he was uh, a case of somebody who was misunderstood in a different way. But the Cone brothers, um, one of the one of the reasons they're misunderstood, they, they, when they give interviews, they're like John Ford. They they act kind of uh, silly and uh, <clears throat> sarcastic. You know, they give sarcastic answers. Uh, Joel Cone was asked what it's like to be a director. He said, "Well, it beats throwing trash for a living." And uh, it reminded me of John Ford, my favorite filmmaker, and, and I had the experience of interviewing him, as I said. And when I interviewed Ford, I was frustrated because I kind of hoped he would open up to me and you know give good answers to questions. But he would pretend, pretend not to remember films like What's the Searchers, What's Fort Apache. I had to remind him what they were. And obviously, he was playing a game with me, as he did with uh, interviewers his whole life. He didn't believe in... Um, it was a self-protective device. He didn't want to share his feelings and interviews, but you can get his feelings from his films. That's where they live, and he's a very emotional filmmaker and a very, uh, uh, very complex. But um, it, it, in some ways, it hurts uh, filmmakers' reputation if they don't explain things to the public. And the Coen Brothers have always refused to explain their films to the public. And I came to respect that in John Ford because what John Ford was kind of saying to us is, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to think of my films. Watch the films, make up your own mind. I respect the audience, you know. And the Coen Brothers do the same. Uh, they're not; they're very bright, intellectual guys. They could explain it, but they think that's a big joke, you know. And uh, they, they see film theory and film scholarship as kind of ridiculous in some ways, which it is. And uh, they, they just make films and they let people enjoy them and but they're not about to explain it i did notice that when when you read Cohn brothers interviews when they're in europe they're a little more forthright than they are in america they think the american audience is pretty stupid which we are but they're actually very big in france you know um, and i'm also fascinated by how these guys have managed to make such personal films over a long period of time in, a, in an industry which right now is not open very much to personal filmmaking. You know, you have to be a Spielberg or uh, Scorsese or a few people can get away with making pet projects, but the Coen brothers have, have always made the kind of films they wanted to make pretty much. And uh, part of it is their funding comes from Europe. A lot of their funding is European and they have a good reputation in France and other countries. And, uh, uh, but somehow they've, manipulated the studios into letting them get away with uh, murder, you know, whatever they want to do. And, uh, they're kind of enigmatic, mysterious characters by nature, but they're, they're kind of taciturn too. And, um, you know, I don't really, I never met them. I don't know a lot about their personal lives, but I just know their films and I find them very amusing when, when you listen to them talking. They, there's a very funny interview with them about a serious man uh, on the DVD when they talk about uh, somebody says, will Jewish people in Minneapolis be offended by this film? And, and they're kind of laughing about that. And, oh, we don't mean to you know, make anybody feel bad about this film. <laughs> you know, they, they clearly don't care. And if I made a film about Catholics in Wisconsin, I would be pretty uh, sarcastic and pretty, pretty harsh. And that's what they're entitled to do with their upbringing is be very critical. But some critics have interpreted that as anti-Semitism, which I think is way off the mark. And so I deal with that criticism in, in my book, uh, uh, you know, and defend them against that charge. I think they're just dealing with their heritage in, in a very candid way and how it, how it felt to them. And, and uh, they're, they actually, you know, they're, even though some people say they're nihilists, that's another charge made against them, and Kubrick is often accused of being a nihilist or something like that, and I don't think they are at all. And if you look at their films carefully, a lot of their characters 
have some kind of vague aspirations to uh, higher meaning in life. They don't quite know what it is, but they're after it, you know. Like the guys, you know, brother, where at thou, they're kind of vaguely spiritual in some way. And the guy in Serious Man is, is looking for serious spiritual answers to the biggest philosophical dilemmas of, of humankind. And, and this happens throughout their work. And, and when you deal with a, a very bleak film like No Country for Old Men, uh, the lawman in that film is a, a man of great dignity and, and uh, integrity, Tommy Lee Jones. He's an old-fashioned cowboy kind of lawman. And what the film is really about is that the, a guy like that is an anachronism in modern uh, America because we're a land of serial killers and you know people shooting up schools. And, and he has to deal with this complete maniac who's going around killing people, and he admits that he can't understand this this kind of evil so that's a really serious philosophical riddle that they're trying to explore in the film how do you deal with that kind of evil that's rampant in our culture and, and a guy like that who has integrity and he's a very efficient lawman he's just no match for this this killer and um that theme appears in other Coen Brothers films true grit somewhat like that um other films uh where they have Characters are, you know, Marge in, in Fargo. Like she's at the end of the film, she's she's driving the maniac to the police station in her car, and she says, "It's a beautiful day, and you know, look at it, it's wonderful. And why are you doing this? You're killing people for a well, few, few dollars? What's the point? You know, I don't get it. She just doesn't get it. But she's a good person, you know. So they're not nihilists at all. They're they're faced with the dilemma of what does a good person do in in a a naughty world, as Shakespeare called it. Yeah, there were a couple of things I just wanted to um, pick up on because they've sort of touched on my pet interests, which is um, I've written about the representation of Jews in contemporary cinema, and I, I, I used the from uh, nineteen ninety onwards, and I used a lot of Cohen films. Um, so, so Bernie and his sister in Miller's Crossing, for example. Um, um, there's the rabbi. I love the scenes with the rabbi on Hail Caesar. Um, the, the, the interdisciplinary faithful <laughs> uh, I sit on a chaplaincy team at the university and um, as a Jewish advisor whenever I'm sitting there I think of that sequence and what would happen if I played that rabbi um, and, and for me that the epitome of all this is Walter because um, uh, uh, Walter's a very interesting character uh, in The Big Lebowski because he's ethnically not Jewish and Polish um, but um, and religiously Jewish and highly unusual but foul-mouthed uh, a Vietnam War veteran that frames his whole outset um, seemingly based in part on John Milius um, and, and, and he's fascinating because to me he's the antithesis of how you, you know you know, he's like I'm as Jewish as Tevye. I, I, I'll admit the um, swearing from this podcast, but you know, I was Jewish as Tevye. But you couldn't get a character as far from Tevye, size and beard apart. And um, so the interesting thing is, you know, and then you focus a lot of attention on a serious man, and people talk about this as being anti-Semitic or self-hating or self-loathing was one of the quotes you, you put in the book. And you're like, well, to be honest, apart from the few exceptions that you just mentioned, which 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 Cohen characters do come off well, he doesn't. It's not the Jews that come in for special treatment, really. It's the odd cop from from the way you've presented it. There's a funny line at the very end of the credits of uh, Serious Man that says, "No Jews were harmed in the making of this motion picture," which is their kind of joke about you know uh, 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 offending people's sensibilities, tender sensibilities. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they're they're uh, kind of ruthless toward humankind in general, but they do have characters who are good people, but they're, they're exceptions, definitely. And there are films in which there aren't any good people. I mean, that's not, they don't have to put good people into the films. Burn After Reading, I find very funny because it's just a bunch of uh, pathetic losers uh, uh, trying to uh, outwit each other. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, the Lady Killers, I kind of like, even that's a film that uh, everybody is supposed to dislike. I find it a very amusing film. I don't think it's quite as good as the original British film, which is a better film, but I love Irma P. Hall, the black actress, who's just great, and Lady Killers is very innocent. She's a, a good person. She's a religious person, and uh, she's beatific, and she survives. Alexander McKendrick, who directed the original Lady Killers, said in the commentary that the old lady in his film actually winds up killing everybody because she's so innocent. 
that he found that really interesting that all these people are you know think they're outwitting her but she she survives because of her uh, beatific innocence and that's what Irma P. Hall does and she has a great monologue at the beginning of the film she comes in and complains about her nephew to a cop about his hippity hop rap, rap music it's like a wonderful monologue but she's in this house with all these these criminals and uh, they all wind up getting killed one by one and she survived one thing that offended people was she winds up getting the money the illicit money and she doesn't quite realize you know what it is and so she gives it to bob jones university which is a university in the united states which is a notoriously racist uh, southern institution which you know doesn't uh, for a long time they wouldn't let black people in the school etc and, and but she's naive and she gives it to this terrible place and people thought that cone brothers is being cruel toward this wonderful lady uh well i mean this is this is a sad joke about humanity that people are exploited good people are exploited uh, you see this all the time in political life that uh, hapless people in uh, uh, middle america and the south and in england and wherever are exploited by unscrupulous politicians and criminals and they take advantage of their goodness and their uh, naivete and um, naivete can be a dangerous thing too uh, you know, one of my students pointed out in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, one of my favorite films, Jimmy Stewart is, you know, the idealistic politician. But this, this student pointed out that um, this is a guy who comes to Washington. He knows nothing about government, and yet he's a U.S. senator. He, he, he publishes a statewide newspaper, and he doesn't even know who the chief politician is uh, who controls the state. He's extremely naive. And... Um, Graham Greene writes in The Quiet American, his great novel about Vietnam, he said, uh, innocence is a form of insanity. And I think about that a lot. And I began to think, yeah, Jimmy Stewart's character is kind of culpably innocent in that film. He's, you know, he doesn't belong in the Senate. He actually says that at one point. And uh, some of the Coen brothers' characters, their goodness is a form of insanity in a way. Um, so, I mean, these, these filmmakers are operating on very sophisticated levels that kind of float over the heads of a lot of uh, film critics like Hoberman and other people who, I, like one thing I was attacking Hoberman for saying in True Grit, uh, there's a scene where uh, a Native American gets hanged and he, he wants to say his last words, but they don't let him do it. They just press the thing and he goes down to shoot, you know. And Horbergen uh, uh, was horribly offended by that. But, you know, they're making a point that uh, uh, the people in that film uh, don't have any regard for this Native American character. And it's not the Coen brothers who are the racists. It's the society that they're satirizing. I mean, a lot of people don't get satire or irony or all these things that, you know, Jonathan Swift uh, on down the line, uh, a modest proposal. <laughs> If he wrote that today, he'd probably be canceled, and people would say, horrible man, suggesting that Irish people should eat their children. They, they wouldn't get it. I, my, my favorite English teacher in high school uh, was a Jesuit. Uh, he didn't become a priest. He went off and married a nun, but he was, uh, he was a scholastic, they called him. He said, never use irony because people won't get it. And he was correct in a sense. People usually don't get irony, but I love irony, and I use it all the time. But a lot of people just, you know, floats over their heads. And the Coen brothers are so smart. I, I've loved their smartness, you know, and, and they're just way ahead of a lot of critics. But the audience, uh, to give the audience their due, as Billy Wilder said, uh, you know, uh, individual members of the audience can be idiots, but uh, when they're all together, they're a genius. And they've done pretty well with audiences. Uh, Fargo is a big hit. Uh, True Red is a big hit. I mean, I, I think that's a film that, I was disappointed by, frankly, because I thought the original, I'm a big John Wayne fan. I thought he got his Oscar for making fun of himself. And uh, I kind of regretted that he should have won several Oscars for his great performances for Ford and Hawks. But here, here comes Jeff Bridges, one of my favorite actors. And I thought, well, okay, he'll recreate the role in some different way. But he did kind of a parody of John Wayne parodying John Wayne, you know, and I didn't think that worked very well. And But the film is a beautiful, film pictorially and the young girl 
looks perfect for the part, but she can't handle the ornate dialogue with the Coen brothers. They write great dialogue. They're kind of like Preston Sturgis. He's one of their great influences, uh, but she just can't quite handle the dialogue. One point I was going to make, a lot of people ask the Coen brothers, who are your influences? And they expect them to spout, you know, filmmakers. But really they say their influences are literate, literary people. Um, Raymond Chandler, who influences uh, Big Lebowski, for example. Um, Flannery O'Connor. I was reading her last short story recently, Revelation, which is, uh, I think, might have inspired the last segment of Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is my favorite cumbra. It's from that very strange segment where all these people are crammed into a stagecoach and they're, they're in the afterworld going into the afterlife. And the revelation of dying planner kind of wrote a scene like that taking place in a dentist's office where all these people are crammed in and acting very strangely. And there was a religious old lady and a sacrilegious girl screaming at her. And it has a Coen Brothers tone. And uh, they also love... Uh, James M. Cain and Dashiell Hammett, you know, so those are their influences, those great literary figures. You answered one of the questions I had, which is, um, which is your favorite film? Um, but, but why is it that one? Well, I love Buster Trucks. The Western is my favorite genre and always has been since I was a kid. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I grew up watching Westerns and uh, I wrote uh, two books on Ford. And, it, you know, it didn't occur to me until after I'd done my Ford biography. Well, I come from a family of pioneer people. Uh, my uh, On my mother's side, they were Irish immigrants who came to Pennsylvania, and they were uh, coal miners. One of them died. One of my great-grandfathers died in a coal mining accident. His wife and daughter took a wagon train west, and they stopped in Nebraska, which was considered west. It's Willa Cather country, but that's where... Buster Scruggs' wagon train episode takes place in Nebraska. And on the other side of the family, um, uh, our, our family were pioneers also. And they, uh, uh, well, that was the, the McBride side of the family. They, uh, they helped found a town in, in uh, Nebraska. And they were robbed by the Jesse James gang. And, and I married an Irish woman. And her family, that was the one thing about our family history that they really thought was cool, that we were robbed by the Jesse James gang. They thought these people sound like mythical figures to Europeans, you know, but we were actually robbed by them. They were very nice to us. They, they had uh, exhausted horses and they demanded a swap of horses. And then they were very polite and gave them our horses. And they, they gave us their worn out horses. If we had stuffed them, we'd be rich today. But on my mother's side, they were uh, also, um, Irish immigrants, and they wound up being uh, silver miners in, in, in uh, Idaho. And uh, one of my great-grandmothers drove a stagecoach. I actually knew her. She died at age 96. She drove a stagecoach. So so I come from a kind of Western family background, even though I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, like the Cohn brothers grew up in Minnesota. But anyway, Buster Scruggs is a six-part anthology of Coen Brothers' greatest hits, in a sense. It's got all of their different modes of storytelling. It's got farce, uh, black comedy, really devastating uh, episode with this armless, legless uh, thespian who's uh, got a beautiful voice and he's treated like garbage in the West. And um, there's the raunchy, funny scene with the cowboy playing by, played by James Franco gets hanged he turns to the guy next to him who's blubbering he says first time huh that's one of the signs of Coen Brothers films um and uh but the most moving part is this 40 minute wagon train uh segment where about a young woman Zoe Kazan is wonderful in the role she goes west very shy young woman and uh it's very 40 and uh pictorially very beautiful sequence but very dark and and it's based on a very obscure Western story. I don't know how the Coen brothers found these stories, but I, I dug them up. Uh, oh, and there's also this great episode with Tom Waits based on a Jack London story about an old prospector. This really uh, haunting tale. But when they were growing up, they read a lot. And I guess they read Jack London and they read uh, the, the guy who wrote uh, uh, the, the Gal Who Got Rattled is the name of the uh, story that They've, they've filmed uh, with uh, Zoe Kazan, and it's, it's very moving about this uh, young woman who 
gets terrified of Native Americans and kills herself uh, precipitously, and she doesn't understand that she didn't have to do it. You know, and it's very moving. It's, it's a beautiful romantic scene with this cowboy who loves her, and they're going to have a life together. And then in the next scene, she gets killed, and the old uh, trail boss. It's it's very laconic dialogue, very beautiful dialogue. And uh, it's, it's a very sad episode, but very, that's the most realistic part of the film. Most of the Coen Brothers films are not terribly realistic, you know, but that, uh, that and then it, it goes into the mode of this very fantastical, uh, allegorical tale of the afterlife with uh, disparate kind of people in a, in a wagon, I mean, a stagecoach going into a hotel, which represents uh, heaven, apparently, and we don't know what's going to happen at the end of the film. But it, 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 it seems like a kind of film you make at the end of your career as a kind of summing up of your themes of all the ways you make films, all the styles. And then it turned out the Coen brothers decided to take a break from each other for a while and not make films together, which I didn't expect. And actually, I should tell you, since you're interested, um, I did a book called Two Cheers for Hollywood, which was a collection of my uh, short pieces many, many articles over the years. And I wanted to collect them. And this is 2017, I think. And I thought, well, you know, I've always wanted to write something on the Coen brothers and, and I've never read something that, you know, I really felt captured them perfectly. There are some pretty good books on them, but I thought I'll write my piece on the Coen brothers. So I, I watched all their films again in a two week period, deliberately out of order because I didn't want to do it in a sequential order for some reason. I wanted to do a thematic approach, and I wrote a, a long critical monograph, which appeared in two, two Cheers for Hollywood, and I, I hoped that it would get more attention. It didn't get a lot of attention, although the book has sold pretty well. So then I thought, well, you know, I should spin this off into a separate volume, and then they came out with uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and I thought, well, hey, I could add that together. And then Anthem Press contacted me, and they said, we have, we're doing a bunch of short books on cinema, and I've always written these long, long books, you know, in recent years. When I was younger, I wrote shorter books. And when you get older, you get, like you see life in more facets and more complexity. But I've kind of, one of my secret goals has been to write a short book. So I finally thought, okay, uh, they want a short book. I've got the perfect thing. I'll take my Coen Brothers monograph and I'll really uh, tackle Buster Scruggs in depth. And I write a really good piece on it and uh, put it together as a, as a short book with uh, some really good frame enlargements and that's what we did well great and we're glad and we're glad that you did um well we've taken up a lot of your time um for which we're very grateful um but before you go i wonder um could you tell us about what you're working on now well i'm not sure right now i'm, I'm kind of you know i had these four books out at once i had the billy wilder book the political truth about the assassination then I did an updated version of my book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career, and the Coen Brothers book. This All four of them came up between October of last year and March of this year. It was quite a, a lot of things coming together, and it was more exhausting than I realized because I had to you know, read all the proofs and do all the final stages, you know, all the, all the minutiae that you have to do as an author. And, and then uh, I started... Um, doing podcasts about these books. And uh, my publicist at uh, Columbia University Press says I must have set some kind of record for the number of podcasts in the last few months. So I've been doing podcasts all the time. And they, they asked me to do podcasts on Wells a lot and Capra and Kennedy. And, you know, that's one thing you learn. I didn't realize this when I started writing books on Wells and Ford is that if you're going to write a book, you're going to have to spend your whole life following this subject because you're going to have to do later editions and uh, updated books and things. And, you know, a book is not just sort of finished and you can forget about it. I guess some authors think of it that way, but I, I like the Wells, uh, I've done three books on them and, and whatever happened to Orson Wells, that was a hard book to write. It took five years. I was really trying to cover his whole career, but majorly focusing on his last 15 years, which people didn't know much about and how he got to be a totally independent filmmaker after having been a, uh, as my friend Douglas Gomery hypothesized, he borrowed his theme 
he was an independent filmmaker who briefly had the resources of major studios rather than being a failed Hollywood studio director. I followed that theme. But it took a lot of work to try to encompass Wells's career in 400 pages because, of course, Simon Callow, who I admire, is on his fourth volume of Wells Wells's biography, and he's been on it for 20 years, and I, I really wouldn't want to be doing that. Robert Caro, who I admire, <clears throat> he's done four volumes of his Lyndon Johnson biography, and he's in his 80s, and he's trying to finish it. You know, he's up to like 1968 or something like that. Uh, and uh, But I, I wanted to write a short book uh, that was pithy and, you know, a good monograph on the Coens. And it was fun to do that. It was very exhilarating. And, you know, it influenced the writing of the Wilder book, even though the Wilder book came out later. I, I did the, a lot of the Cohen book first, and I I got bored with the usual approach of film studies books where they go film by film by film. And I thought, I'm really tired of that kind of book, and I, I, I want to do a book where you jump around thematically and just write whatever you think is a theme worth pursuing. And, uh, you know, you can follow lines throughout somebody's whole body of work or whole career, you know, how they deal with, religious issues, how they deal with comedy, how they deal with violence, etc. And, and uh, I found that really exhilarating when I wrote the Coen Brothers monograph. And so I followed that approach with Wilder. The first half of the book is is mostly chronological until he gets to be a director in Hollywood. And at that point, I, I warned the reader, I'm going to depart from chronology and I'm going to tackle him more thematically. And uh, my editor, John Belton, and my other editor, uh, Philip Leventhal, went along with that. And I'm grateful to them. And um, a few reviewers objected. They said it's you know hard to follow, but a lot of people thought this is kind of refreshing. You know, it's not the laborious, and then he made this, and then he made that kind of thing. Uh, I find it more fun and more intellectually lively to jump around uh, in your head, you know, like I'm sure you do too. So that's what I've been doing with the Cone Brothers. Right. Um, yeah, no, and uh, um, there is a refreshing approach, um, particularly if, um, um, you know, the interesting thing about filmmakers is you go film by film by film, well, one goes film by film, but what about the ones they didn't make? Um, and they get left out, and, and that's often the gaps in between the projects that we know the, the least about, and, and, and it, you know, the films aren't necessarily the sum total of a, of a director's output. Yeah, it's really like, you know, I saw the exhibit in San Francisco and I was really struck by the card file and Napoleon's life where he had a card for every day in his life or almost every day. And But all that research was sort of funneled into Barry Lyndon, and, you know, uh, but there is the, the big Napoleon volume of his research and script. And uh, that I, I do that with uh, when I wrote biographies of directors, Capra, Ford and Spielberg, uh, you know, there'd be certain projects they tried to make that they couldn't make, uh, fell through. Um, but, you know, one reason I don't write biographies anymore is they're too expensive to write, I find. And, and uh, I, I go broke every time I do a biography because I pour my own money into it. You never get a sufficient advance. And they don't sell as well as they should, unfortunately. The public, I don't think, deeply cares about movie directors' lives, uh, unfortunately. Uh, they care about politicians and they care about movie stars, etc. But I've never found a movie star whose life is interesting enough to write a book about. I thought of doing one with Spencer Tracy, but somebody else, James Curtis, did a good one on Tracy, who came from my hometown and went to my high school. But, um, uh, you know, you put a lot of years into, into uh, backbreaking work, and then um, the reward is not commensurate with the output. So I've gone back to writing critical studies, which is how I started, because I was in the Midwest. I didn't have access to filmmakers or archives very much. There was a good archive at our school, but I was writing more critical studies, and now I'm back to doing critical studies. I find that actually very refreshing and very liberating. You know, the Billy Wilder book and my book on Ernst Lubitsch, uh, How Did Lubitsch Do It, it was a big critical study. and. Uh, that took a lot of digging. One reason I wrote that was I just wanted to see all the Lubitsch films. A lot of them were hard to see in America. So I went to Europe uh, several times and watched Lubitsch films and went found his old apartment where he grew up and, and uh, Max Reinhardt's theater and stuff. So it uh, uses biographical uh, tools, but to eliminate the work. And somebody like Lubitsch, his films are more exciting than his life, you know. 
Whereas with Capra and Ford, they had very adventurous lives full of incident. And, uh, you know, Ford went through World War II and the Korean War, et cetera. And Spielberg, you know, to research him, I had to research, uh, uh, I spent a, a year researching the Holocaust in great detail, and then I had to research sharks and dinosaurs and UFOs. It's interesting to get into uh, the life of somebody like that. And when, as true, if you dig into Kubrick, you, you start delving into his obsessions too. But um, a critical study uh, can be as illuminating as a biography uh, if you do it right. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um... Well, um, and I look forward to, and we look forward to what your next one will be when you've decided what that yeah. is. Um, yeah, I'm kind of mulling right now. I'm kind of, you know, just in the, in the receptive mode, uh, watching films and catching up on films and trying to figure out what, what I'd like to write about. It's kind of a nice feeling. Do let us know when uh, when you've decided, and we look forward to reading that one. And um, there's a lot of reading to catch up on. Uh, uh, from you um, but I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show today I uh, really enjoyed the chat yeah, it's been great talking to you